the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Point zero percent of the population. That's how many people it has taken to turn the world upside down. We're not talking about uh, what's happening in the Middle East, uh, although that's turning the world upside down. What we're talking about is uh, what's happening just about everywhere in the world, and it's providing us with a lot of good candidates for a really important award. And now, it's time for The Jerk of the Week, starring John Steigerwald. Look, maybe you could say transgender stupidity is trivial compared to what's happening with Israel, but it's really not, because every day we see examples of the insanity, and it comes from people in power, government, and supposedly smart people with large platforms, and it can and has um, affected the lives of millions of people, and it goes on every day. It's been going on for a long time. Here's somebody named Emma Vigeland, uh, who hosts something called the Majority Report, and she has 221,000 followers on X, formerly Twitter. She's responding to a viewer who said that she thought uh, that Emma was right that transgender women, also known as men, should be allowed to compete against women in sports, but that Emma was wrong about the science. Matt's citation off cases about the Olympics is pertinent, but an argument for better planning and more transparent discussions. Your argument is really bad on this, and you're out of your depth. You're correct that trans women should be able to compete in women's sports, but your argument for it is just scientifically and factually incorrect. I'm actually not bad about this. Um, I'm 100% right on this. I don't give a about the scientific explanations people if they identify as a woman get to compete in sports if that's not fair in the short term for a variety of little competitions i don't give a shit i don't give a shit because the societal interest of including trans people in society trumps stupid competition full stop so i'm right about this you're wrong about this yeah well she's an idiot and on her ex uh, bio she says she's a sports fan and this is someone who believes that accommodating 0, 0.04% of the population to set back the advances made in women's sports is a good idea. And this is also someone who has just been named the AM1250 The Answer Jerk of the Week. Well, later in the show, we'll tell you about some real stupidity from the daughters of the American Revolution. Where do you see this? But when we come back, uh, we've had a week's worth of coverage uh, of what's been happening in the Middle East and what's been happening in our House of Representatives. Our media expert, Jeffrey McCall of DePaul University, will be here to analyze it. Stick around. Well, you would think that uh, when something as horrific uh, as what happened in Israel last weekend uh, takes place, that the media wouldn't feel an obligation to show both sides. But somehow they've been able to do that. Jeffrey McCall is a professor of communications at DePaul University, and he joins us now. Welcome back, Jeff. Good to have you, as always. Thank you, John. So uh, just a couple, some examples here. I don't know if you saw these. I saw this in a piece, uh, I think it was on Red State. Somebody was um, 
keeping track of this stuff. But in the New York Times, uh, the first reports of the story, they referred to the Hamas attackers as militants and gunmen and never used the word terrorist. Should we be surprised by that? No, we shouldn't. There's been an effort throughout most of the establishment media to kind of sanitize uh, the world of terrorism, so to speak. And the British Broadcasting Corporation also is in that boat. They issued a a directive to all of their reporters to not to use the word terrorist in covering the conflict there in the Middle East. And I don't know how you can avoid using the word terrorism or terrorist when talking about this conflict. I mean, I I know it's a complex situation and it's not easy to cover this, but I don't think there's any doubt, though, that when you have a, a, a group of people, whoever they are, however you want to define them, you know, killing innocents, that that is clearly an act of terrorism. And if if we can't call what has happened in Israel the last few days terrorism, uh, then the, the word basically is not going to be used at any time, at any circumstance. And that really is unfortunate because at a certain point you have to call things like they are. And when the news media wants to sanitize things, they're doing us a disservice, frankly, because they're trying to make it look like, oh, you know, here are some guys do this and some other guys do this. And we just, you know, we, we don't want to get in the middle or we don't want to make any judgments. But I think at a certain point, journalism has to call it like it sees it and define things in a way that makes sense. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, we, we use that term lightly, but just look at the actions. I mean, let the actions define the terms in this sort of situation. And, and think about this. Just in the United States in the last year or so, when you've had parents speaking up at school board meetings, you've had the Justice Department investigating them and considering them to be domestic terrorists when they're just showing up and raising their concerns. And I know sometimes they're angry, but as far as I know, they haven't launched missiles. They haven't had broad-based kind of you know, violence or anything like that. Um, and Think of the way the news media, including the New York Times and organizations like that, have characterized Americans exercising their rights versus the way they have characterized militants with weapons uh, attacking innocents in Israel. And it's it's mind-boggling at a certain point, but it does show, I think, kind of the confusion that we have in the professional journalism industry today – that journalists are unable to kind of make moral decisions uh, with with any consistency or with any you know common sense at all. Is it the journalists themselves who aren't able to do it, or the the bosses, the management people, who are putting out memos like the one you mentioned? Uh, the BBC, the, the Canadian broadcasting company, did the same thing. Um, is it coming from the management, or is it coming from the 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 uh, the workers. Well, you raise a good point there, uh, and you know ultimately it is the management that has to define the terms under which news is going to be covered. And I think you know as as I've mentioned before on your show, we do have to put most of the blame on the executive producers and the managing editors uh, in the corporate towers because they are the ones who pass down the ideologies and the frameworks within which their reporters are going to work. Having said that, on the other hand, uh, the journalists in the trenches should also have enough sense to be able to say, no, you know, we've got to make the editorial decisions as we see them. And let's face it, there are no executive producers on the ground 
in Israel right now, and there are no managing editors on the ground in Israel right now. And so I think they should kind of back off and let the people who are there doing the mainline reporting help make the decisions. Although this this whole situation, though, of who is actually making these calls is complicated by the fact that the executives are the ones who hire the people who go work in the trenches now yeah, these days. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and as you, I'm sure, know, there are litmus tests, certainly at CNN, at MSNBC, at The Washington Post, and all those places, there are litmus tests. Like, do you have sufficient buy-in to the ideologies and dogmas of the media establishment to be able to work for us? And if you don't, you, you don't get hired, or you can go work at the Daily Caller. And that's kind of the way the, the, the media world has been disrupted in recent years. And this, this is totally different than the media establishment of even a generation ago or even 20 years ago, where with a straight face you could say, oh, there are some people in CBS or NBC, you know, who are interested more in fairness and that sort of thing. And, I mean, think of a guy like Britt Hume now who's retired from Fox News. Uh, He worked for many years at ABC and I think did an excellent job. A guy like Britt Hume could never be hired by any of the major networks today or the New York Times today because he he, he tried to be fair. And I don't think we have that kind of commitment to fairness anymore because everything goes through a prism now of ideology, and that has really hurt the journalism industry. And ultimately, it hurts our culture and our society and the, the, the citizenry. Yeah. Well, I, um, I know you don't – it's not possible for you to know the answer to this, but just, off, just as, in your, uh, as far as your opinion goes, do you think if we were to sit – management people from CNN, MSNBC, and for that matter, ABC, CBS, if we would sit them down in the room, that two things, would they admit to what you just said, that it's coming from them, and and that there are these litmus tests, or do you think that they don't think that that exists, that they don't even know they're doing it? (laughs) That's a good question. It's, It's hard to read their minds at this point, because at a certain point, I think they might just be such true believers to use the term coined by Eric Hoffer back in the 1950s, but they might be such true believers that they're oblivious to the kind of dogmas that they're perpetuating or the fact that they really are, you know, putting their thumbs on the scales of fair and, you know, uh, professional reporting. And I think that's my biggest disappointment with the journalism industry is that we've moved so far from a, away from professional standards. And, and part of that is frankly, that the journalism industry is afraid of the online uh, and um, Internet mobs that are out there that will attack them and berate them if they don't kind of fall in line with kind of the woke agenda or the, the left leaning agenda. And so I think in a sense, you know, e- even if you had the executive producers and the management of these major media organizations, even if they were to acknowledge the problems they've created with their litmus tests and their ideologies and whatnot, even if they acknowledge those, I'm not sure they would change anything they're doing because I think they're so afraid of, of being hassled by the, the, the mobs out there, the online mobs and whatnot, that they would probably still go along because they're more afraid of the leftist mobs and how they will be portrayed than they are by – Anybody right of center who might say, hey, these guys are biased because yeah. they know, number one, that the, they're not going to be beaten up in the same way. And I'm using that term figuratively now at the mm-hmm. moment, 
but they're not going to be hassled in the same way because honestly, the people right of center who look at the New York Times and say, hey, you know, uh, they're running a, a biased news operation, they just stop reading and they go to Fox News or Newsmax or someplace else or the Epic Times. They go to someplace else. But the people on the left who don't like the way the media establishments operate, including like Fox News, they don't just like go watch MSNBC. They have concerted campaigns to disrupt and undercut right of center media reporting. And, and by the way, they consider anything right of center <laughs> moderate and further on. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't consider anything that's kind of fair or in the middle to be honest and true because they believe in activist journalism. And activism means activism on the side that they think is right because uh, again getting back to this true believer nonsense they are convinced that they are right and that journalism is a tool to implement societal change rather than journalism is a tool to inform the citizenry and to let them try to enact societal change we're talking to jeffrey mccall he's a professor of communications at DePaul university he's a media critic for the hill um, so they're Jeff. Basically, what you described there, e- even their f- their fear is biased. They they're not afraid of being attacked by conservatives uh, for being biased. They just don't want. I guess what you're saying is that they don't want the, the the vast majority of people in the media who are on the left. They don't want to be criticized by them, their friends, the people that they want are, are out there trying to please. Yeah, that yeah, that that costs some credibility in their little circles of friends, you know, the people that they hang out with uh at their, you know, f- fancy gatherings or their left of center social gatherings or whatever they do. I mean, they they don't want to be shamed in front of that crowd. If they're shamed by people who are on the right, they don't care, uh but they still want the cultural capital to float in and out of their book clubs or whatever they've got and maintain their sense of stature amongst the the glitterati or the elitists or whatever, however you want to put that. Uh, and and it's, I think another example of it, and this is not anything as serious as not being willing to refer to these maniacs in Israel as terrorists, is that uh, they will refer to a talk show host as, they will say, conservative talk show host Sean Hannity, but then Two sentences later, they'll they'll say Rachel Maddow with nothing in front of her name. Yeah. When was the last time you ever saw a story about Rachel Maddow or Chris Hayes with a label in front of them as liberal or radical leftist? Yeah. Uh, or or any or any of those kinds of derogatory terms, and they always want to have to label. Uh, and, and labeling is is a, a rhetorical strategy. Uh, to try to demean people many times. If if you put a label on them and you're given the power to put labels on people, that becomes a very powerful rhetorical tool. And I must say that the left has gotten very, very good at that, and the right isn't able to. And, you know, what's funny is when Trump tries to label people, you know, the, the establishment media have their hair on fire, like, oh, Trump called Hillary crooked Hillary or whatever. And I'm thinking, well, Trump's just doing back kind of what has happened over the years. Uh, in the dire- in the other direction, and I'm not defending necessarily that kind of rhetorical uh, name calling, but it happens all the time, and labeling happens all the time. But it's more likely to stick in the establishment media when it's being directed toward people on the right. 
Yeah, and uh, there's another example. Uh, I have a couple here. Um, PBS, which I pay for and you pay for, um, referred to what happened in Israel as a violent incursion from Hamas fighters. They're fighters. Now, that sounds like uh, something heroic, doesn't it? Like these, these people are fighting for a cause. It's just amazing that they that they can look at that and not want to throw up and see that what they've written and then go on the air and say it. Yeah, yeah, they're trying to make these uh, Islamic uh, Hamas terrorists uh, out to be some sort of like uh, noble patriots uh, who are engaged in the the you know Concord or Lexington or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, back in the day, and I mean, I, I, I'm sure that amongst uh, the leaders of Hamas, they think they're doing something noble, uh, but their tactics give them away. And I think this is one of those things, like whatever they think they're trying to accomplish ideologically, uh, at a certain point, the civilized world needs to call out their tactics and not give them cover by calling them fighters uh, or insurgents, because really they are they are conducting actions, behaviors, and this is where it's important. We need to make a distinction between behaviors and expression. And if they want to express their outrage or their hatred for Israel, I mean, there's a certain point where, like, okay, that's expression. But when you put it into action, uh, that's a different thing. That's behavior Mm -hmm. because it affects other people. And, I mean, if they're in the Gaza or in various places in the Middle East and they're expressing their anger at Israel and they hate Israel and they don't do anything about it, they're welcome to have that opinion in my in my sense okay because i mean i kind of am libertarian in the idea of like let people have their say sure but once they launch rockets once they send hang gliders with machine guns uh you know into you know you know neighborhoods where they're shooting innocents all bets are off so to speak and that we can no longer try to justify their right to have their own opinions because their opinions have been put into action and here's here's the i think this might be the worst example that i saw I have about a minute and a half left in this segment. Um, PBS had an interview with someone from um, Israeli military, uh, and they actually edited his comments and took out the word terrorist so that he they wouldn't allow him to say terrorist. That's to me really sacrilegious. When you well, start yeah, when you start it- taking people's words and and editing them out and then presenting them as though this is what they actually said. Yeah, that, that's journalistic misconduct when you get right down to it. Because if they're going to interview this guy, you know, this Israeli official, a military official, and, and they're interested in what he has to say, they have to let him say what's on his mind. And he's clearly defining them as terrorists. Now, they don't have to agree with him, but if they're going to edit that out, they are changing the context of what he said, and they are changing the reality. And that's one thing that journalism has a real trouble with these days is that journalism wants to change the reality of what's happening in the world. And they want to change it according to their activist standards rather than to try to paint a picture for us. And even Walter Cronkite used to always say, journalists should just be holding up a mirror to the world and letting the people see it rather than to try to put like make a house of mirrors like you'd see at the carnival or something where it's all distorted. And when they edit out the words, the actual words of public officials, they are changing the reality, and that that's really inappropriate. Yeah, I uh, I I, I want to keep you over for the uh, for the next segment if you can do it. I'm going to take a break here in a minute. There's 
Um, because, and we're talking to Jeff McCall. He's the uh, a professor of communications at DePaul University. And I don't want to put you in a position of defined as an expert on something you're maybe not all that sure about what's going on right now. But I just I just want to get your take just as a guy who's working on a college campus on on some of the stuff that's coming out of colleges and what's happening on college campuses these days. And uh, uh, if you would just stick around and uh, after the break and come back and talk about that. Sure, that sounds fine. Thank you. Okay, we'll be back with Jeff McCall in just a second. Uh, Stick around. Okay, back with uh, Jeff McCall, the uh, professor of communications at DePaul University. Jeff, uh, thanks for sticking around a little bit. I I just um, I don't have another guest lined up for the second half hour. I was actually trying to find someone to uh, talk about this who's on a college campus, and then I realized, hey, Jeff's a professor of communications. He's on a college campus. I know that's not not your area of expertise, but just I'm just wondering. Uh, first of all, just like as a, a general observation of what you've been seeing coming from not only the uh, the college students and organizations, but from the hierarchy at the, the various universities around the country. Yeah, I'll talk about this in kind of a macro sense, because I have been trying to monitor what's happening at, uh, at universities across the country. And my main interest in this is in terms of freedom of expression and whether colleges are places where people can speak freely uh, and have a right to uh, engage in commentary and dissent when necessary. But I'm also interested in how university administrations want to respond to the news of the day, because we have seen in recent years that university and college administrators around the country now somehow, for for whatever reason, feel compelled to have to issue statements or commentaries about things that are happening in the news, rather than just to say, our university is a place where various ideas are expressed, and it's up to the students and the faculty to do that, and the administration should not be trying to engage necessarily in the national dialogue. And, you know, this is kind of interesting because uh, the University of Chicago over the years has, I think, fair to say, has been a leader in looking at how Uh, free expression should operate on college campuses. And in 1967, this goes way back, of course, but I was around in 1967. It was a time of turmoil on many college campuses. And in 1967, the University of Chicago issued what was called the Calvin Committee Report. And the report basically said universities are places where people engage in all kinds of study, but that the University of Chicago itself should not have any position on any uh, domestic or international issue, that the issues are are to be discussed and studied, but as an administration, they should not take a position necessarily on any particular topic in the news. And that has changed a lot in recent years because college administrators now feel like they are the intellectual leaders of their campus And so they have to weigh in on George Floyd and they have to weigh in on Black Lives Matter. And now we've seen in recent days, they feel like they have to weigh in on the crisis in the Middle East right now. And I'm just not sure that that's in their best interest to start to to wade into what is a very complex topic, because, you know, how do you issue a, you know, a, a 100 word statement where you're trying to put in context all the complexities of the situation in the Middle East? without making it look like you're trying to take sides one way or the other. 
And so I think it's been a very confusing time for universities. Um, and I think it's also interesting to note that a lot of the, the turmoil that we're seeing on some, and I think it's probably more East Coast-based universities probably at this time, uh, wanting to have their demonstrations in support either of Israel or Palestine or Hamas, maybe. Maybe that's the way to put it, that these demonstrations in support of Hamas. Uh, but I think it's important for students to recognize that they might have a right to speak and they might have a right to demonstrate, but they should also keep in mind uh, that they should not expect the university administration necessarily uh, to endorse or patronize them for whatever position they take. And also, I think it's worth noting that the students who want to engage in that should also recognize that there might be consequences to what they have to say. And so if you're going to go out in public and you're going to demonstrate for this issue or that issue, that that might in some ways make it hard for certain employers or law schools or professional schools or graduate schools to necessarily think that you're a, a solid candidate uh, for matriculating there at some point or another. So it's a confusing time on college campuses. I mean, over the years, college campuses have all kinds of things that come and go. Uh, but I do think the administrations at these schools should try to engage uh, their campuses to study and to, to, to dialogue. But I don't know that they need to be trying to take positions or advocate one way or the other. Do you think that there was a time, as you mentioned, back in the 60s, um, when a college president or or anybody in the uh, upper echelon of the administration, um, they looked at themselves more as overseers who wanted to make sure that both sides of the story were being told and everybody was being given equal uh, freedom to speak about certain subjects and that and somehow that's evolved to where um, they at some point they um, release these statements and they become in love with their own uh, uh, opinions and think that the world is waiting for what the president of Harvard has to say about this, as though anybody cares yeah, yeah. what he has to say. Yeah, and I, I dare say, I mean, I, I haven't done anything scientific or yeah. in terms of a survey or anything, obviously, but it has been interesting to note, if you look at higher education websites and stuff, how many colleges and university administrators uh, have taken have gone to the trouble of writing out statements to throw out there with regard to you know to the chaos going on in the Middle East, and I'm just thinking, why do you feel compelled to have to make a statement about that? Why do you feel compelled to have to make a statement, you know, about any particular topic in these days? And just except to say that a university is a place where we're going to have widespread debate and study of a number of issues, and I mean they, they don't. You know, colleges and universities, you know, d don't take a stance on, uh, you know, the continuing budget resolution. <laughs> colleges and universities don't take stances on, uh, you know, negotiations with China over economic policy. I think, why are they – basically, they're picking and choosing things that they think are going to enhance their, their visibility, perhaps, for the institution, uh, or maybe more often – it's to try to uh, pander or placate to some of the people on their own campus that they think are going to expect them to step up and speak. And I don't know why administrators feel compelled to have to speak just because some people in the uh, sociology department are wondering, well, aren't you going to denounce racism because yeah, right. uh, of the George Floyd situation several years ago? And I'm thinking, well, who thinks that university and president presidents endorse racism to start with? Um, yeah. 
Why do we need to speak on every social cause? And you might remember this when uh, the Supreme Court uh, made its ruling uh, on abortion a year and a half ago. A number of college presidents around the country issued statements about that, Mm -hmm. that, that, uh, you know, they were upset that uh, the court had made this decision that was going to change or possibly change abortion access in various states around the country. And I'm just thinking, why should a university president have to be commenting on that particular issue either? Well, why Given that it... that's an issue that is divisive in the nation, I'm not sure why you'd want to weigh in on that as to say the states are going to rule this. A college or a university doesn't have a policy on those kinds of issues. Well, is there a certain amount of arrogance or conceit that goes with thinking that uh, you know this this uh, this 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 subject hasn't been discussed thoroughly enough until you hear what I have to say about it, because I'm the president of Harvard. Yeah. Well, I think you're right about that. Uh, and I must say that um, most college administrators have to have a certain amount of self-confidence, should I say, mm-hmm. to ever take on that role. But I think they're out kicking their coverage if they think that everybody needs to hear what they think about any particular issue. But the other thing that troubles me is that they pick and choose which issues, and they're picking and choosing issues that are usually sympathetic, uh, you know, to the left side of most political issues. And, uh, you know, when was the last time you heard a college president stand up and say, by golly, we really need to make sure that border down there gets closed so we don't have as much illegal immigration? You know, they would never say anything like that. But I dare say uh, there have been a number of university presidents over the years, I would dare say, that have made comments about uh, DACA or having a sanctuary campus or those kinds of things. And I always just kind of figure, you know, if if you want to play politics and make your institution a political organization, there is a risk at that. And the risk is it's not considered then a place for everybody to study broadly of all kinds of issues. And you're probably also turning off a lot of your alums who don't want you to be playing politics, particularly the ones who agree with the stance that you want to you know, project out there. Um, we're talking to Jeff McCall, he's a professor of communications at DePaul University and a media critic uh, for The Hill. We've had him on a million times here to talk about the media, but I wanted to talk to Jeff about uh, what's going on on college campuses, especially in light of what happened uh, in the Middle East uh, this past weekend. Um, and so uh, I'm just wondering, Jeff, uh, if uh, your experience – as a college professor, when the administration, uh, president, or someone else, and, and you know one of the higher uh, higher ups at the university, when they express opinions, how much of that filters down to the students and makes them believe that they're supposed to agree with them? Like, a, like, a, know, okay, well, I used to think X, but now I, I think, I think, I think it's Y because. President so-and-so said so. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a risk there. I'm not sure, frankly, that your average student at any college campus really is going to be that directly affected by what their college president says. And, and also, it wouldn't surprise me if at most colleges and universities around the nation, whether they're Big Ten-type schools or ACC-type schools or liberal arts schools like where I am, I would I would suggest that most college students – don't know that much about what their president thinks on anything, and probably they're more interested in going to their classes and passing their midterms and uh, going to a social gathering on the weekend. But having said that, I do think that there is some clout that goes with being uh, the president of any institute of higher education, 
And I think it is more likely to affect the faculty and the employees at that institution. Because if if you've got a university president and, or, or any high-ranking administrator like a provost or a vice president for academic affairs making statements on various political or cultural issues, it's kind of a way to signal to the rest of the campus that this is kind of the dogma you expect everybody to kind of get on board with. And it, it creates, in my opinion anyway, a chilling effect on campus for faculty who might want to write an article about something that uh, is kind of contrary to what the president thinks or do research in that area or to speak freely in their classroom on those topics. Uh, and I think, you know, when you're up for tenure or promotion or to be rehired or whatnot, you probably want to make sure you're not too far off the, off the mainstream in terms of what the uh, institution itself expects. And yet, you know, this is probably not a surprise to you, but a lot of colleges and universities now uh, require for people who are applying for academic jobs. So, I mean, if they've got a, a job opening in the physics department at, uh, you know, East Podunk State, most of these applicants now have to put in a statement in their application showing how they are committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's a political litmus test in itself. And when you are only going to hire people that you think are on the particular side of a particular cultural issue, you're hiring then people who are only going to adhere to a certain point of view, an intellectual point of view. And it also kind of suggests how we're allowed to think on a particular college campus. And I think that runs contrary to the mission of any college in the first place. Well, I got to ask you so, your, to take on this real quick before we finish up here. I got about a minute and a half. Uh, out at Stanford, a teacher told the Jewish students in his class to take their belongings, stand in a corner, and then said, this is what Israel does to the Palestinians. Uh, and then he asked them, how many people died in the Holocaust? And one of the students said, six million. The uh, professor said, colonizers killed more than six million. Israel is a colonizer. How do you how do you feel about that as a way of uh, conducting a class? Wow. Well, I, I don't think that's appropriate at all. And, you know, we, t- we talked about the difference between expression and action. And if you're making people stand in a corner, that's behavior, that's action. And that kind of crosses the line. But the other question I would have is, what was the uh, content area of this professor's class? I mean, if, if the class is dealing with, you know, um, some sort of cultural issue or well, the course, you know, excuse the, me, the, 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 the rights the, of individuals. Yeah, the, well, yeah the, the, the course is civil, liberal, and global education. Well, again, that kind of <laughs> catches everything, doesn't it? And I think, but I think that's one of the problems because it gives professors too wide of a range to go in and talk about anything. And one of the concerns I hear from colleges around the country is that you've got professors of biology going in and talking about you know, presidential right. politics and that sort of thing. And, and keep in mind, any professor who's hired at a university only has academic freedom as far as the content area of their expertise, and that doesn't go into the political or cultural realm on most occasions. Hey, uh, Jeff, I'm out of time. I held you over. Uh, you get a, uh, make, make sure you put in for overtime. And, uh, <laughs> Thanks. We'll make sure we take care of you. Thanks. We'll, so we'll, talk, really- we'll talk soon. I always appreciate the chance to chat with you. Thanks. Okay, and that's Jeff McCall. We'll be right back. Well, this was uh, one of my uh, <laughs> one of my favorite stories. Uh, a good, I think it's a good story to end the week with. Uh, as I said in the open, I, I would have I tell you something about some more transgender insanity, and I 
I don't apologize for talking about this as much as I do here because I don't think it's a small thing. I think it's a sign of just how insane the world has become. But apparently there's a controversy now with the daughters, the daughters of the American Revolution. They want to start they want to start letting transgender women join the daughters of the American Revolution. So there's a debate going on and there's a debate about whether or not there's even a debate, but apparently there are there there's a movement afoot to allow men well transgender women also known as men into the daughters of the American Revolution. But what's interesting is that the the um the daughters of the American Revolution, the qualification for that is that you can show that you have linear descent from a patriot associated with the American Revolution. So, you you if you if you can't you can't get in if you can't prove your linear descent, but you can get in, according to some people, and it may happen here. You can get in if you think you're a woman. You 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 can't get in unless you prove that you have you have linear descent. But you can get in if you feel like today you're a woman. The daughters of the American Revolution. That's what we ha- that's what we're dealing with. And uh, why not? Uh, and there's nothing is sacred anymore. I mean, we have we have uh, girls girls in the uh, in the Boy Scouts and boys and men in soror- college sorority. So now that's where we are. So uh, salute the flag and feel really happy that the daughters of the American Revolution are finally going to allow men to join a an organization that starts with the word daughters. I'll talk to you on Monday. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.